We did a bit of gardening yesterday and, um, yeah, survived in the heat, I suppose. Uh, very nice. Let me um, start by giving you a bit of a, a question to share with the person next to you. I know some of you love this. When's the next one going to be, Graham? But no one said that to me at all. Anyway, <laughs> um, so here it is. Classic dinner party question. You're going, you're going to get a couple of minutes. You've got to turn to the person next to you or behind you. If you don't know each other, you've got to introduce each other and introduce yourselves to each other. If you could choose... Three people, three people to have dinner with from history or today. Any three people, who would you choose? Go. Okay, folks, that's going to do us. I hope you got a chance to share your three. I heard a few people, I overheard someone say Arnold Schwarzenegger. He would be, um, wouldn't it be great if he went to the loo in the middle and said, I'll be back. <laughs> Maybe a historical figure, Emperor Nero, uh, Roman Emperor Nero in the 60s AD, he was known for not only persecuting Christians, but he was known to burning them alive, but his lavish dinner parties. So maybe he would bring the dessert, I'm not quite sure. Um, other historical figures, uh, Hitler, Stalin, those sort of people, you'd want to ask why maybe. Maybe an actor, uh, maybe a politician, uh, maybe both, maybe Donald Trump, who knows. Um, I've got to stop. I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah. So... I No doubt these would make, the dinners that you're putting together would make very significant meals, would they not? Uh, you would not call them ordinary in any sense of the word. Now the Bible, especially the New Testament, our focus sort of uh, the next couple of minutes, uh, um, the New Testament is full of significant meals. These uh, incredible times, really. I wonder if you can remember some of those meals from the New Testament. If you're thinking through your head, if you know your Bibles a little bit, if you don't know, you might remember one or two. Here's a couple that popped into my mind. In John 21, there's the, the, the record of Jesus who is, after his resurrection, is standing on the beach and he sees some of the disciples fishing and he calls them in. You remember this? And, and if you know it, uh, he invites them into the shore and he shares breakfast with them, some fish and some bread. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He's eating with us. He's no ghost He's eating with us. Man, I reckon that would have tasted pretty good. There's the disciples getting together for the first meeting following Pentecost. In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, sharing a meal together, and to prayer. Pretty significant meal in the history of the Christian church. And then there's that final... Uh, nervous meal that Paul shared with these pagan 
uh, sailors in Acts 27, right before they knew they were going to run aground, right before they knew they were being, going, to be, going to be shipwrecked. Incredible sort of scene, I would think, on the boat that Paul shared this meal with them. And of course, back in the Gospels, there's Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Pretty significant stuff, causing quite a stir. And I bet Levi would never forget the meal he had with Jesus when Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Imagine being there. But when it comes to the most significant meals in the Bible, we cannot ignore arguably the most well-known and possibly because some Italian guy painted it in the late 15th century, what's commonly known as the Last Supper. The final meal Jesus had before his arrest and trial on the night before he was crucified. And as we'll see this morning, this was no ordinary meal. This was a meal full of significance and meaning. Now our plan this morning is to find out why. It'd be good for you to have, if you've got it there, there it is, your outline, scribble some things down, have your Bibles open in front of you. We're starting a new series uh, which I've just called Jesus' Passion. The passion is a funny sort of Bible, well it's not really a Bible word, it's a theological word. You won't find it in the Bible. It's the bit where that people describe Jesus' last sort of 24 hours, give or take, when he was in Jerusalem up until his death and resurrection. That's what people call the passion. So here's Jesus' passion. What was he passionate about, I wonder, in these last 24 hours? Let's pray together as we open God's word. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, today. We thank you for the sunshine. Um, We thank you for uh, the opportunity to be together, uh, to laugh together, to share together. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for the encouragement it is to to meet. And pray, Lord, today we pray that um, we would remember Jesus' words, that we would put his words into practice, your words, Lord. Uh, Lord, help us to hear you and what you have to say to us. Help me to be clear. In Jesus' name, amen. When Luke 22, verse 7 through to, through to 13, the scene is set. It's the Jewish Passover festival. It was taking shape and now was the day of unleavened bread in this festival time. It's the day, as we read, if you might have picked up from Deuteronomy 16, it's the day which, on which the Passover lamb has to be sacrificed. It was a meal which remembered the redemption of God's people way back in the time of slavery in Egypt. It was a meal of looking back, a meal of remembrance, looking back. It was the last plague, the plague of death on the firstborn. But those with the blood of the sacrificed lamb smeared on their doorposts, the Lord would pass over that family. But those without the firstborn of that household would die. It was a dreadful night. Dreadful night. The screams of the people could be heard across the land. But, finally though, the Israelites would be free. 400 years of slavery came down to this moment. They would be redeemed and rescued. It was time for their departure. So 
So Peter and John, well, Peter and John were sent ahead to, pre- to prepare for this annual meal of, of thankfulness and celebration for the rescue of, of their people and of their people many generations earlier. So in verse 10, we see that they were given instructions by Jesus. And in verse 13, we read that they found things just as Jesus had told them. It's that last point that I think the writer, Luke, he wants us to see. See, from the very beginning to the very end, even here in Jerusalem, over the next 24 hours or so, Jesus was in control. He set the scene. This was his time. This was his hour. This was his plan, his purpose, his mission. Now, in one sense... It's, if you've ever made a movie before, now I don't know what this, this movie was from, but it's, it'll suit the purpose for our illustration anyway. If you've made a movie, what you do when you make a movie, you put together scenes, don't you? In fact, you put together storyboards from the very beginning. Storyboards that go together and they work towards an end in the movie. Scene by scene, a frame by frame, bit by bit, Jesus is building the narrative all with the end of the movie in mind. Everything is heading toward that end. And what's that end? That end is the cross. That's the end. That's where we're heading. So the disciples are sat, reclined. They would have sort of leaned back on the floor. If you know me, that would have been the most uncomfortable experience of your life. I like chairs. I don't like being on the floor. Everything goes pins and needles and I've got nothing. Um, but for them, comfortable, comfortable time, sharing this meal and lamb uh, cooked over a flame. Let's just remember that for a moment. That's lovely, isn't it? It would, have, it would have been great. Unleavened bread with bitter herbs. It would have tasted and smelt beautiful. But this was an intense evening. We already know, we think, from John's, John's uh, account of the, of the night that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. That, that would have made them think, no doubt. Tension was in the air. Now, the disciples were not sure why at first. They, well, they'd know soon enough, wouldn't they? The expectation on a night like this, when you celebrate the Passover, was that the teacher, the leader, would share the story of the first Passover, would take them back to the Exodus chapters and Deuteronomy chapters that we read before, share the story of God's rescue, his power, his judgment, his covenant faithfulness to his people. But that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus did. Let's pick it up from verse 14, 1.2 of our outline. Verse 14. Oops. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus no longer looks back. 
he looks forward. You see that? Jesus redefines this meal. He reinterprets the symbols which they would have known for so long. He's eagerly desired. He, he really, really, really wanted to meet with them and, and share this meal with them. He's eagerly desired to, to eat this meal with them and, and he would not eat and drink like this again until that great and final deliverance when he returns, when the kingdom of God is fulfilled, when all things are made right, uh, Bible calls it heaven, uh, a new creation. So Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he shared it amongst them. And he said, this is my body. He said, this bread represents my body do this eat this in remembrance of me why remembrance the disciples are asking what are we what are we remembering for you're right here in front of us what do you remember what what do we need to remember exactly where are you going that we have to remember something Ah, so taking the cup this is the new covenant in my blood, he said, which is poured out for you. This is a new covenant. Uh, they, they know the covenant. We know that. This is the new one. This is the one that Jeremiah prophesied about. The Lord will remember their sins no more, Jeremiah 31 says. And Jesus said to them, even in a few moments' time, in, in verse 37, he said, he would be numbered with the transgressors, the sinful. You and I, see, the new covenant Jesus spoke of would be one of sacrifice and service, where the innocent dies for the guilty, where the innocent is numbered with the transgressors. A new covenant in the blood of Jesus, in the blood of a lamb, a once and for all, Sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Well, the disciples are a little bit confused. They don't quite get it yet. They don't really understand just yet. But Jesus, you see, is pointing them to the cross. That's where the narrative is going. That's where the story, the scene by scene, is heading towards. He's pointing them to the cross because that's where he will die for them. That's where he died for us. His body given for us. His blood poured out for you and me. It's the cross they would need to remember. Jesus was telling his disciples on the occasion of the Passover when it was Jewish custom to remember the Exodus, to remember him. A strange paradox, isn't it? To, to remember the one who at that point was still with them. Sometime later, Peter himself, who was there that night, uh, encouraged his readers remembering the lamb, to remember the lamb without blemish or defect, 1 Peter 1. And the Apostle Paul too described Jesus as our Passover lamb who was to be sacrificed. Friends, this was no ordinary meal because in it Jesus pointed his disciples and he pointed us to something extraordinary. And that something extraordinary is the Son of God. The Son of God. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his death for us sinners when Jesus died in our place. 
Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, friends, let me demonstrate to you um, what happened on the cross. I brought the biggest book I could get from my office. This book here represents my sin. It's nowhere near big enough, to be honest. Um, not enough words in that book. But anyway, it'll, it'll, it'll do for the time being. It's just a dictionary. Okay, I'll just put that down here for the moment. Now, my left hand here, that, that, that represents us, humanity, when we were created. Uh, let's just say the ceiling represents God. Right? There's nothing in between us and God. Uh, God created us to have a, a perfect relationship with him. But the problem is, giving us free will, we, we sinned. And here's my sin, here's your sin. And it sits there. And it stops us from relating to God properly. It's a problem. We, we, we can't know God. We, we, we can't be friends with God. In fact, that sin makes us enemies with God. But over here, here's Jesus. God sent Jesus to this earth. Now, Jesus, you'll note, has no big fat book of sin sitting, in front, sitting on him. Jesus was perfect. Perfect relationship with God. In fact, he was a perfect sacrifice for our sin because on the cross, this is what happened. That sin was transferred over him. A great theologian of the, of the 16th century, Martin Luther, Reformation guy, he called that the great exchange. And that's what, it is. That's what happened on the cross. That's what Jesus did. Jesus took our sin on him. Uh, and that's what we remember. And that's what the disciples were told to remember. Remember the cross. Remember Jesus. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave and conquered sin and death once and for all. Jesus tells his disciples that he told his disciples that night and he tells us uh, today to not to forget not to forget that not to forget the cross to remember Jesus to remember the cross well as Jesus himself predicted he predicted his death would come in the context of betrayal and rejection uh, 1.3 on the outline not only those who, would, who publicly stood against him the, the chief priests and teachers of the law but also those who were close to him Judas look at verse 21 verse 21 says but the hand of him Jesus said but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table can you imagine that scene just for a moment Imagine the, the gasps of air. What? Betrayal and rejection would go hand in hand with Jesus' service. The love of money had taken over Judas. At the start of the chapter, um, it, it details the seedy backroom deal he made with the chief priests and teachers of the law. All that was needed now was an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Perhaps that's why Jesus didn't tell his disciples, uh, Judas included, where the meal was going to be served. He kept them guessing. Uh, he wanted, in fact, he eagerly desired, remember, this last night with them so that he could tell them, so that he could remind them. This last night, he, you see, his arrest, it had come in his time. Jesus' arrest would come in his time. He was in control, not, not Judas not the chief priests and teachers of the law. No, no, no. Jesus was in control. 
Nevertheless, betrayal and rejection will accompany Jesus' service. Now, this was hard. This was hard to swallow for the disciples. Who would do such a thing? Look at verse 23 there. They began to question among themselves of who might it be? They began to accuse amongst amongst themselves who might it be? This wasn't the only dispute. Verse 24, another dispute arose amongst them on this night as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Now, it wasn't the first time this dispute came up, this argument. Flick back with me in the Bibles. If you've got a Bible there, if you don't have a Bible, look, look on the person next to you if they've got a Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Luke 9, verse 46. So an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in, the name of, in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For who is least among you all? For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest." greatness to these men was fame and, and, and honour and power and authority see greatness to them was victory not, not being like a little child not serving others but being served that's what greatness is greatness is a choice a choice they want to make now I tell you it's easy it's easy for us to think just a little bit like the disciples sometimes, isn't it, I think? I think we're kidding ourselves if, if we think we haven't thought like them at times. When we, think, when we talk of my rights rather than my responsibilities, when we push our agendas rather than the interests of others, we've got an AGM coming up, Uh, we have a fantastic parish council. They're a great bunch of people. I'm very thankful for them. And I'm very confident that none of them are in the business of making a name for themselves. But churches, ironically, looking at passages like this, can be an easy place to make a name for yourself. They can be. So we have to be careful, don't we? Well, back to Luke twenty-two twenty-five. So flip back there if you haven't already. Luke twenty-two twenty-five. Jesus said to them, you see, Jesus actually turns our attitude of greatness, I was going to say upside down. No, no, it's right side up, isn't it? Listen to what Jesus says about greatness in the kingdom of God. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and, they, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is, not, is it not the one who is at the table, but I among you as one who serves? You are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging, it's probably ruling, the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Friends, Jesus says greatness is serving just as he did. Just as he served the disciples with that meal that night, he would serve them and us with his body given, his blood shed for us on the cross. But verses 31 and and following tell us that serving like Jesus is going to be difficult. Serving like Jesus will be a difficult lesson. Trials and temptation, trials and temptation will come our way. Jesus, or he says to Peter, trials and temptation will come your way. I want you to notice something here. We're we're looking at verse uh, 31 32. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't pray that the trials would go away. Do you see that? Verse 32. He actually prays that Peter's faith may not fail. And when he is turned back, such an experience will strengthen his brothers in Christ. Hard times will come to the, as, as we follow Jesus. Uh, the Bible talks about that. Our comfort, our prosperity, our health is not what Jesus thinks is most important. Our trust and reliance on him or our faith is. Improving our life is not Jesus' priority. Our trust in him is. Do you see that? That's what should shape our prayers, not the temporary things given to us by God. So does that mean we don't pray for, for healing or comfort? No, not at all. Now that would be disobedient to God's word. But as we pray, our focus is on eternal, that our faith may not fail. That's what we pray. Well, Jesus tells his disciples in verses 35 to 38 that serving will also be difficult because persecution and enemies will surround those who follow Jesus. When Jesus first sent them out, he refers back to Luke 10, they did not lack anything. Uh, Jesus asked, did you lack anything when I sent you out before? They said, well, we lack nothing. It was all good. Now with his departure, things have changed. They would need a purse. It's not like a little girly bag. Um, They they would need something to carry their money in. They would need a bag. They would need a a sword. Interesting. We'll get back to that in a minute. I'm sure you're all waiting for it. (laughs) We'll get there. The disciples will be rejected just like Jesus. See, Jesus, who will be numbered with the transgressions, the sinful. He'll be thrown in with the guilty. Jesus, who will be thrown in with the scum, the the rubbish of society. The world has made its decision about Jesus, so those who follow him better be ready to be treated the same, Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus uses the word sword here. To me, he seems to be, he seems to be giving a, a graphic illustration of bringing the truth home that the disciples will face danger. He's not advocating physical violence. This is not a call to arms for Christians. Uh, we've only got to go to verse 38, a couple of verses time, where Jesus rebukes such a literal interpretation he says it's very hard to get the tone of voice but he says no that's enough that's enough 
Or even in verse 51, where Jesus rebukes one of the disciples who struck the servant of the high priest. He, he clipped off his ear. Jesus rebukes that disciple. That's not our way, he says. That's enough. The book of Acts shows us that the followers of Jesus were simply armed with prayer and faith in God. So, in the case of serving like Jesus, following Jesus will at times be tough. It'll mean temptation. It'll mean temptation to deny Jesus. And it'll mean opposition too. Serving like Jesus and following Jesus. And so what should we do in response? Let's close with this question. What did these disciples need to do as Jesus prepared to leave this world? Well, let's come back to the words of Jesus in this most significant of meals. Come back with me to verse 19. Jesus says, Our response is to remember him. Our response is to remember the cross. His body given, his blood poured out. When it comes to serving others, remember Jesus who served us. Remember the cross. When trouble and trial and opposition comes, remember Jesus, remember the cross. Let's pray. <clears throat> uh, Father, we thank you for your uh, goodness to us. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you today most of all that, Lord Jesus, your body was given to us, your blood poured out for us. Lord, help us to remember the cross. Help us to remember Jesus. Lord, when times are difficult, help us to remember you. When time, when opposition comes, help us to remember the cross. Remember the way you served us. Lord, when trials come, remember Jesus. Remember the cross. Lord, help us with that. We ask that you'd fill us with your spirit as we do that. Give us the power that only comes through trusting in you, through the, the, the gift of your spirit. <clears throat> and Lord, we pray that you'd, um, uh, you'd, you'd bless us. Uh, you, you'd give us those moments where, um, where uh, we can stand up for you and, uh, Lord, that we would remember you and that we'd serve like you as well. So, Lord, we thank you for today. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.